we come in our study, the Minor Prophets, to uh, the book of Amos. And I'd like to read Amos chapter 1 to, to begin. Uh, Amos uh, certainly is uh, unique among the prophets for a, a number of reasons. Each of the prophets is unique. I, I, I think that Amos is unique in a unique way. But uh, we'll look at some of those things as we study this morning. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall destroy or devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people of Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Reba, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Now, unless the Israelites began to be proud and thinking, oh good, all our enemies are going to be judged, we'll see in chapter 2 uh, that God has the same type of words for Israel uh, and Judah, and that finishes uh, the, entire, uh, the entirety of uh, chapter 2. So, our, our author... Uh, is Amos, uh, and there's no mention of his father's name like Hosea, Joel, and, and others, 
but he mentions a place. And he says he came from Tekoa. And Tekoa is a small uh, town, a small village southwest of Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is here and Bethlehem is further south, and Tekoa they thought was maybe five more miles south. But there's very few maps except the most comprehensive map book that even shows it on the, uh, uh, on the map and registers where it was. So he's not coming from a big city. He's not in Jerusalem like Joel. He, he is coming from a small little town. It, uh, it, it will show us uh, important things about uh, God calling somebody. Uh, his occupation... He says, and, and he's the only prophet that says what he did, his occupation. Uh, Hosea and Joel don't provide any detail. Hosea immediately is called to marry a, a harlot, and Joel announces his ministry as the word of the Lord that came to Joel. And everybody else uh, is similar. Uh, Hosea says the word, and Joel says the word. Obadiah said he saw a vision. Uh, Jonah and Micah said, I saw the word of the Lord. Nahum says a vision, Habakkuk says an or oracle, Zephaniah and Haggai say the word of the Lord came to them. Uh, Zechariah starts a little bit different because he talks about coming from a priestly family and he's in a, the line of priests. And then Malachi uh, describes it as uh, a, an oracle. So it's a unique introduction to the prophet's message because he says, I was in Tekoa among the shepherds or among sheep breeders, or those that took care of sheep. He says, I, I was just a shepherd. I was from the small town, and I was just a, a shepherd. He adds more detail about his occupation in chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through 14. Uh, Amos is accused uh, by Amaziah, the high priest, and the high priest is trying to get him in trouble. So the high priest says, you're speaking out against Jeroboam the king, I'm going to let Jeroboam know that you're speaking out against him. And that's, uh, and that's what he does. Uh, and uh, Amaziah says, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and, and eat bread there and prophesy there. Right? The same thing they told almost every one of the prophets. Don't, don't talk to us. Go talk someplace else. Go bring your message to somebody else. Or at least change it. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. So there's no lineage of prophets. You remember in the studies in Samuel, there was a group of prophets that would go together, wasn't there? Elijah had sons of the prophets. Group of, groups of prophets used to go together. Amos says, I wasn't one of those. I wasn't a son of a prophet. But he says, I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. That's the complete package, isn't it? I was this. God told me to do it. Now hear the word of the Lord. That's, that's it. So, well, then he speaks a, a prophecy against uh, Amaziah. It's one of those uh, ironic portions uh, of, of the book. Amaziah says, go prophesy someplace else. And Amos says, no, I'm going to prophesy against you because you're going to be judged. So he's no prophet or a son of the prophet. And he says he's a dresser of sycamore figs. 
And basically the idea is that a fig doesn't come ready to eat. It needs to be peeled. It needs to be, somebody has to do something. One of the illustrations uh, that I have in my life is we had pineapples at Walmart. You could sell pineapples all day. But a pineapple, you have to do something with it, don't you? You gotta cut the ends off, you gotta do this, you do this. But all we had to do is take our pineapples and put them in our corer and, and the thing that cut the edge off and put them in a plastic container and sell them like that. And they flew off the shelf. Because why? The pineapple was ready to eat. So all Amos is saying, besides being a shepherd, I had this little side job. It seems like that's all it was. I took figs and I made them ready for people to eat. And they came and they, they ate them. Or I gave them to the other shepherds. It doesn't say. But the, but the emphasis is on, I wasn't a big shot. I wasn't a big cheese. I was a nobody. But God called me and that makes the whole difference. I didn't put myself forward. I didn't say, boy, here I am following these sheep, cleaning up every day. I got to go around. I should be, I should have a prominent position. I'm one of the top shepherds here. Nobody dresses figs like me. No, that's where he was. And God came and said, I need you to go prophesy. And that's what he did. His prophetic call, he says the words of Amos. And then he says, which he saw. And it's very important because it's our words, but it comes from God. This pulpit never should be a place for opinions of men. Never. What is it? My words, where do they come from? God. That's the prophetic call. You know it. You're sure. God called me to say it. We saw it in chapter 7. God called me, told me to speak. Therefore, thus says the Lord. That's the process. The words of Amos, which he saw. The prophetic call again, man's word with God's authority behind it. Same thing in Hosea, same thing in Joel. We'll see it over and over again. And then he says, which he saw uh, concerning Israel. So there's a different focus because he's from Judah. He's from a town in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah, but his prophecy is going to go uh, uh, to Israel. Uh, Barnes says he saw with that vision wherewith words can be seen the seer's vision that's in the mind. Well, in the mind goes through the mouth to Amaziah, to Jeroboam. It goes to uh, uh, those in Israel. Not mere sight. It's not mere sight. I didn't just see words like words on a wall or words in a picture story or, or words. I really saw the words of God. They became alive to me. What God spoke to me became alive in my heart. It's a vision that's given by God. And then he talks about the time of the prophecy. And unlike Joel, that we had difficulty, well, us and a lot of other people, uh, unlike Joel where we couldn't pinpoint when his prophecy was, uh, Amos does it in three different ways, uh, by the reigns of two kings and by the occurrence uh, of an earthquake. Uh, Jeroboam, who is Jeroboam uh, two, Roman numeral two, right? The first Jeroboam was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He is the pattern. He is the the author of all the sins that everybody never departed from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
He was first. This is the second Jeroboam. He reigned approximately 41 years in Israel. And it was a, a time of quiet and a time of expansion. Uh, but still, the nation didn't depart. You remember in Israel, there was not one righteous king. And from the uh, introduction to Hosea, remember after Jeroboam, what happened with the kings? I think there was a, a eight, a seven or eight in 20 years, 25 years. This guy uh, killed that guy. And I think to only two out of eight died natural deaths, something like that. But here he is. He's reigning for 41 years in Israel. Didn't change from the sin. Uzziah comes. He reigns 52 years. And maybe from like the 770s into the 720s. Well, someplace these two kings overlap for a while. And they overlap. And uh, Amos... Uh, prophesized during that period where they overlap. And uh, it, that could be in the 760s, 750s, something like that. It's, uh, of course, it's hard to say, no, this was the exact year, although uh, some of those charts that I handed out really seem to pinpoint uh, the time. And Uzziah, you remember, he, he got all um, proud and he went into the sanctuary and he was taking on himself uh, actions of a priest, and he was struck with leprosy. And you also remember uh, uh, Isaiah's call in the year that King Uzziah died. So there, there's an overlap. Uzziah dies, and Isaiah starts that, that same year. So, so maybe Amos prophesied for 12, 15 years, something like that. We can't be dogmatic. And uh, one of the charts says around 765 to 7. 53. And then he says, two years uh, before the earthquake. And um, the earthquake is mentioned in uh, Zechariah 14, 4 and 5. And Zechariah says, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So there was a, an earthquake that people fled from. There's no there's no uh, surprise there. Earthquakes are scary. Uh, one time in New Jersey, we had a, a, a mild one, and, and there's, no, there's no feeling like it. You, you, things are moving around, and you're like, well, how come stuff is moving around? I remember Jean was upstairs, and she said, Art, Art, like, what's going on? And, and very soon after that, we, f we found that all the people in the whole block had come out of their houses to, to see what was going on. It was one of these, you know, shifts underneath, uh, well, like a two point something or other. But it's weird to feel like I'm, I'm standing still, but I'm not standing still. But this earthquake evidently was enough uh, that people fled with some of the prophetic words that were coming. There's no doubt that people would be more scared. Uh, people often, uh, people often do that, right? They live complacent. But in the back of their mind is God's message, isn't it? They really don't care day to day. But in the back of their mind is God's message. And something, that, something happens and then they said, this is the Lord. This is the Lord coming out. The, the sailors in, in, uh, in Jonah's day, that's what they understood. God's doing this stuff. Something's wrong. Right? In their universe, something was wrong. And we got to sort this out and figure it out. Because otherwise, we're all going to die. And they, people become 
uh, religious in a sense very quickly. So the, the, they fled in that time. Amos gets his call. He leaves the figs. He leaves the sheep and he goes to Tekoa and he begins his ministry. He moves from Judah to Israel to Bethel. The, the only place that pinpoints him is right there in Bethel in chapter 7. And that's where the, one of the two shrines were set up, Bethel and Dan. And you remember what Jeroboam 1 did, set up two shrines. Then what did he do? Well, I need some priests. I need some feast days. I need to, you know, right? We have to fill out this false worship to make it look real. So that's what, that's what uh, is happening. And Amaziah, this priest, that's what he is. He's a false priest uh, in Israel. So he goes up there to preach against prosperous Israel. And in his life and his vocation, uh, he's of little consequence. He, he knows that. He says that the description that he gives of himself shows, I don't think I'm anybody special, uh, but God takes him from behind the sheep and makes him uh, a special prophet. So then uh, that's the time we come to the object of Amos's ministry. Uh, specifically, his ministry was against Israel, the northern kingdom, like, like Hosea's ministry. But broadly, we saw in our reading in chapter 1, and you'll see in chapter 2, it's all those surrounding nations. And when we get to the uh, uh, verse 3, the Lord roars out of Zion, we'll, we'll, we'll see that. So specifically, his ministry is against Israel, broadly against all the surrounding nations. The first wave that comes is against all the nations, Damascus, etc., all, all through. Israel's idolatry and false religion, they're complacent. Uh, there's passages here that show that they live this luxurious lifestyle. They're not concerned about things. They oppress the poor. They're filled with hypocrisy. There's empty profession, apathy, ingratitude, and all these evil practices that the first Jeroboam started just kept on going. So then some things uh, about the structure and the, the object uh, that he's preaching against is Israel, uh, but it's achieved with a, a unique structure uh, picturesque language and, and powerful images. Well, you say, well, that, that sounds like all the prophets. Well, to a certain degree it is because uh, God wants his word written on our hearts, doesn't he? So if he uses a picture of a lion, that should really have an impression upon us. If he's using a, a picture of something else that the land mourns or the beasts mourn, uh, that really should strike us. But So it's prophetic, uh, but it's very unique. It's unique right from verse 1. We've discussed that. It's unique in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion. And, and that's just like, not completely like, uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 16. They, they say two sentences exactly the same. It's unique, but it's similar to Joel, but different. But it puts God in control right from the start. God's voice controls all things. The Lord, there it's Yahweh, Yahweh roars from Zion. And uh, we'll get to that uh, discussion. Chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16, is the judgment against 
all the nations. And it uses that, thus says the Lord, and then for three transgressions and for four. And we'll talk about it later, but it's a, it's a picture that is talking about multiplicity. It's a picture that's talking about completeness. I've seen three transgressions and four. In Proverbs 30, the writer says, there's three things that amaze me, four things basically that blow their mind. In other words, if you've seen three and then you've seen the fourth, you know all the rest. And uh, it's very consistent with what writers say about it. It fills it out. And it's as if God is saying, look, I've seen all your sin. I've seen it all. He's not saying, I've seen three. And by the way, oh yeah, that fourth one, I saw that too. No, he's saying, I've seen them all. The three led to the four, and that's the end. It shows the completeness of sin. It shows the multiplicity of sin. In Proverbs, it shows the amazement that the, the observer has. There's three things that don't say enough. And four, that, that tops it off. That's how he's looking at it. But it also underscores Amos' authority as a prophet. Then chapter 2, 9 through 16, part of the uh, thing to the nations, Israel and Judah are addressed. Uh, there's a larger section, chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 14, is marked by a word or is marked by the phrase, hear this word. And there's also woes pronounced, but that is all against Israel. And in the middle of that exhortation is uh, Amos's use of the day of the Lord in chapter 5 and verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Now, this is interesting because we studied this, uh, studied this in Joel, and Joel is uh, intense in it. Uh, so, so, chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, w would, would we say that there's anybody in the room that would desire the day of the Lord? Would we say that Joel was preaching about the day of the Lord so that you, you would desire it? No, it, was, it had consequences. The day of the Lord was coming. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. So what God is saying is, you're going on in sin. It's as if you want the day of the Lord to come. It's as if that's your desire. Because the day of the Lord is going to come and be displayed on all your sin. And if you don't repent, if you don't turn, it's as if you want it. You're saying, go ahead, God, take your best shot. Judge, who I don't care. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to reform. And uh, he goes on. Well, that's one of the picturesque things. So we could just read that. It is darkness and light and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and went into the house and leaned his, serp leaned his hand against the wall and the serpent bit him. See, the day of the Lord you can't get away from. Oh boy, I'm sure glad I got away from that lion. And you hear a roar of a bear behind you. Then you go flying into your house, you slam the door before, behind you, you put your hand on the wall, you say, I'm sure glad I got away from the lion and the bear, and, it's, and a serpent bites you. And that's what God's saying. What, why would you want that to happen? Because that's what it's going to be like. You're not going to be able to get away. And that's, that's one of those picturesque 
illustrations that uh, Amos uses. So he demonstrates his uh, authority as a prophet. Chapter 7, uh, verse 1, all the way to 9.15, there's a number of uh, pictures and visions, and it starts with, this is what the Lord God showed me. Uh, there's actually in uh, chapter 8 uh, a, a few things where he says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So there's a conversation between, between God and Amos. It's interesting because he says, well, what do you see? A basket of fruit. You're right. That's what it is. And then, and then God applies, uh, applies it. So here's, that, that's his interaction with God. What do you see? And God confirms you're seeing the right thing and you go preach uh, the right thing. So chapter 7, verse 1 to 9, this is what the Lord God showed me. Chapter 7, 10 through 17, we read part of that. That that's the confrontation with Amaziah and the prophecy against Amaziah and Jeroboam. And then uh, chapter 8 and verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 10 is the, the prelude to destruction. And multiple times in that section it says, in that day. And that's repeated, in that day. And there's also a repetition of the phrase that declares the Lord. So, so we know from our studies of declares the Lord already uh, that that means this is absolutely going to happen, right? Jeremiah has it 90 times, 100 times. Uh, I'm sorry, I forget some of those things, but, but it's just declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. This is what's going to happen in that day. And then, rather than have promises of restoration sprinkled in the prophecy, just the end of Amos gives any kind of hope. So chapter 9, 11 through 15, just those verses uh, are a promise of restoration. Similar pictures of restoration as Hosea and Joel. There's a focus on David, the prosperity of his kingdom, the prosperity of uh, of his land. But it's the only place other prophets say, here's a denouncement and here's mercy. Here's a denouncement and here's some hope. Here's a denouncement and here's something else. You, you think of Joel. He's denouncing, consecrate a fast, consecrate this, and then he says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. And it breaks it up. And then he goes right back to other things, but comes back with something else. So what, what then are the themes and the purposes uh, of the book of Amos. And it's interesting that a, a number of uh, writers came up with different things, but they all kind of joined together. Uh, the focus on Israel's sin is the same as Hosea and Joel. It's repent and reform. Uh, stop uh, living evil lives, stop living lives uh, that go against God's will and do God's will. Uh, there's institutional evil that's being spoken against because the state is corrupt. They did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And the church, all right, worship is corrupt uh, as well. Worship is shallow. Worship is false. And uh, Amos is going to uh, hammer away at that. 
Uh, a second theme uh, is God's passionate concern for justice. And injustice is mentioned uh, many times. And uh, some interesting comments were that injustice breaks down a society. Uh, we see it in our day. Injustice spills out. You hear of a criminal who did heinous things and they let him go on a technicality. Well, that's that, you know, or somebody does some crime and they say, well, if you admit to doing this lesser crime, then you'll get less time. And they bargain about justice. Well, justice meted out the right way uh, brings unity and promotes unity and brings stability. But injustice brings this alienation. It brings schism. It brings uh, this chaotic thing. Injustice makes people think what is right and what is wrong. And the relativism of our day basically is that, isn't it? Oh, you believe your truth. I believe my truth. Well, there can't be those two things. But injustice breeds that and then, uh, uh, finally, under the, 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 um, the focus and his uh, themes is uh, Yahweh's faithfulness to his covenant and to his people. You, you are disciplined for correction. You receive instruction for correction. Uh, it's said in Proverbs, it's said in Hebrews chapter 12, it doesn't seem pleasant for a while. But you avoid, you avoid further discipline by renewed obedience and renewed repentance. And God's being faithful to his covenant by warning people that that's what's coming. By pointing out for three transgressions and for four. By letting people know, I know exactly what you've done wrong. I know all your sins. I know everything that you do. I know your attitudes. I know your motives. I know everything. So it's a faithful God to his covenant people. What's the bottom line in Hebrews chapter 12? Why are we disciplined? Because God what? Loves us. Would you say, well, I'll just let my kid do anything they want. I never, well, I heard somebody say that. I never say no to my child. Well, what do you say? No, pardon me. Pardon me, toddler. I have another alternative behavior for you. What do you say? But it's out of love. Oh, you say all these rules, all these things, this, this, all this discipline, all this rigor, right? One of our kids says, come on, I just want to be a kid. Yeah. Well, sometime you're not going to be a kid. You're going to have teachers or professors or somebody called a boss. Right? And, and you and I, we've worked with people like that. Boss. I'm a boss. And then you find out this is like their seventh job in the last three years. Because the problem is with them. It's not with the boss. My stupid boss. He doesn't know anything. Well, if you knew stuff, maybe you'd be the boss. But now you're on your seventh job in two years. There's some, there's some warning signs, aren't there? But, but God is faithful. What is he disciplining for? 
Turn them around. Turn them away from wrath. What is he disciplining us for? It doesn't seem pleasant. You say, Lord, I, I, I've been following you for years. I'm dealing with the same stuff that I dealt with in 1978. Well, help me, Lord. It doesn't seem pleasant to be reminded of your laziness. It doesn't seem pleasant to be reminded of your slothfulness. It doesn't seem pleasant to be reminded you have a cold heart towards God sometimes. But, but it's Yahweh's faithfulness. And that's what he's blasting these people with. The sin is deep, so, the, so the, the, the exhortations have to go deep. And then, just finally, a word about Amos. He stands out as a prophet. Uh, someone said that Amos is a man of rugged conviction and an iron will. And that's true. I could just go back and dress figs and watch sheep. I don't need to be threatened by the king. But what did he do? Right there. God told me to go. I went and every word that he put in my mouth, I said it until my ministry was done. A man of rugged conviction and an iron will. He, he, had, this, he had this as the core. He was convinced of his calling. He was convinced of Yahweh's words, both written and revealed. Some people say uh, it, it looks like Amos understood the Pentateuch. He looked like he understood God's character and what God was showing his people. He was bold in the face of danger and confronts Jeroboam's sin and Amaziah's threats. And he counters with a prophecy. But he was also humble. See, he's Pauline, isn't he? Paul says, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. In my life, I actually persecuted the very people now that I'm, I'm, I'm preaching out for. But he says, that's always there as a reminder to me that I should be a humble servant. And then there's some details here uh, that uh, Amos was an excellent writer. And I don't understand all the Hebraic nuances, okay? But he's gifted in phrases, pictures, he's direct, he's colorful, and he, he's complex. Some of the things they say are, are complex pictures and turns of phrases. It reminds me of James. We talked about James in the introduction. 22 words in the first chapter nobody else uses in the whole New Testament. That, that, that means something. Look at the Apostle John. John uses the basic, plainest words that you could possibly use, but you never miss what John's message is. You say, well, God's the Father. And John uses the, the Father over a hundred-something times in the Gospel. And he uses the word glory or glorify over 40 times. What's the idea? God gets all the glory. We saw his glory, Jesus' glory, over and over. But they're simple, basic words. And, and Amos is one of these guys, one of... One of the writers says the book of Amos is a literary collage. I said, well, I've got to learn before I see the whole collage. Uh, he's a master of literacy, oh, literary technique and rhetoric. It means speaking that's designed to, to be persuasive. So these powerful illustrations come and they get people's attention. And uh, uh, another guy says he subjects the, uh, the, the reader uh, to shock treatment. And uh, so that is the introduction to the book of Amos. We are, are going to cover the, 
Lord roars from Zion uh, next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are excited for our study in this book. We are excited to see the character of this man. Uh, we can see his humble nature, Lord, and yet we can see he's firm in his calling. He knows who called him, and he knows what he should say. Help us, Lord, in our lives to have all our words seasoned with grace, uh, like salt. Help us to speak purposely as we know you would desire us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.